Hi and welcome to Defining Boundaries, a podcast about the interesting characters from our surveying and spatial industry and their unique perspectives on life and our industry. I'm Peter Cox and I use my 25 years of contacts as a surveyor and teacher to dig deep into the lives of others. Each fortnight, I delve into the life and times of people from all over the world who share the same profession and passions. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel, like, comment, feel free to share with your friends. Do you have a question about the surveying or spatial industry? Or would you like to join me for a chat? Or would you like to hear from someone in particular? If so, send me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram and we can catch up. Welcome back for part two with Paul. There are a few months between chats, so let's see where this takes us. So grab a drink, sit back, relax, while we finish our chat. Defining Boundaries with Peter Cox. Hi, Paul. Welcome back. It has Thank you, been, Peter. It has been a little while since our last chat. We've been very busy. <laughs> yes, we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we covered some interesting things in our last chat. So first of all, I'd love to start with going back over um, something that was slightly touched on, um, but it's about the importance of surveyors being leaders within our industry and our community. Um, and I ask that because of all of the positions you hold, which we will, we will go into as well. Um, because I think all of those positions that you do hold that you mentioned earlier was um, comes into how I think surveyors or even just people um, contribute to the community and how we can improve things. Well, that's where I think surveyors are so underrated. We are really, the, we are the, the linchpin that somehow makes it all happen because you get an architect or an engineer that design stuff um, to some town planner's rule, maybe, mm. or to an engineering rule, doesn't matter, they design it. But when it comes down to it, you've got to set that out on the ground. You've got to make it happen, you know, and if you've got a stormwater pipe clashing with the sewer pipe, clashing with the, the foundation of a footing or something, it's the surveyor is usually the one that figures that out the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> so I think surveyors really are leaders and they should be involved when, whenever a design's happening, uh, for a for a strata complex, you know, a big unit uh, development, that subdivision, whatever, the surveyors should be sitting at that table, putting in their um, opinion, because when you do, the other people sit back and they go, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. That that would be a really good idea if we incorporated that. Or thank God somebody told me about that before it became a problem. Yeah. So yeah, I think surveyors really are far too much underrated and enough, uh, not enough surveyors stand up and say, no, I should be at that table. I want to be there to make sure this is easier for everybody later on. Mm. I I totally agree there because I actually sat on a meeting with Pierre with a company. Um, they're quoting doing some tender on something and Pierre just saw a completely different side to it that they did not even realise that they had to take into consideration for. 
So they're putting in this massive tender for a job, not even realising that before they can even get to a certain stage that, you know, five things had to be done by the surveyor before they could even move on to that part. And it's, um, you could just see them going, oh, oh yeah. You know, they did not even think about the whole process of how you had to come up with design and check and then, you know, build it and then check it again. They were basically looking at, oh, well, we need you to check it once it's there, but you you need that information beforehand to actually do the design sort of process. So it was yeah. very interesting. Well, we, oh, several years ago, I find that um, I started doing this. People will send us, they want to quote, and they say, here's the scape of works. And I write back to them, I say, well, you know what? You've got your scape of works. I don't think that's appropriate here's the scope of works that I think you actually need and yeah. here's our price to do that. Now, I know everybody else is going to quote on the scope, scope of works that you gave, but um, if you'd like us to do the job, this is how we think it should um, pan out. Mm. And sometimes that works for us. Sometimes it doesn't because we've quoted outside the scope of works. Yeah. But most times the people appreciate it go, oh, yeah, I didn't realise it worked like that or you needed that mm. done or, or whatever. So um, I just, yeah, I'd like to see more surveyors be a bit more positive in how things should actually function how how they should pan out mm. and you talked about you know sitting on fastratas and things like that it's quite often that surveyors don't even don't even have knowledge of anything happening until they actually get asked to do a set out or actually just do the strata plans at the end now there's there's one development in, in particular that stands out there was um um a whole bunch of two-storey units and they had a pool that was the equivalent of about eight Olympic pools basically formed like a, a figure eight around the whole development. And a whole bunch of issues with that. There was um, <coughs> engineering issues that were existing strata schemes within it because once it was going to be a tennis resort uh-huh. and they had started building, but then it just it didn't work economically. So then it became a tourist resort. Anyway, there were all these professionals sitting around the table. There was the architects. Was the civil engineers, the electrical engineers, or all these people? And, um, fortunately, those developers um, were guys that had a fair bit of faith in um, um, me, and I said, "I've got to be at that table. Yeah. I need to say you need easements there, or that'll be common property, or whatever the case may be." Mm-hmm. And we made it work, and in the end, it was so smooth and it was not a problem. Whereas others, where you get invited in the last minute after everybody's designed it, and God knows what. Yeah. You know, you got to you got to fix everything all the time, yeah. and it would be so much easier if surveyors had a seat at that design table mm. every single time. Yeah. And I really think it's a bit quiet and shy when it comes to that. Mm. What about um, with the positions that you hold? Because I know that you know you talked about your positions. You've got the council. Um, you're a registered certifier for strata, so obviously that's um, something you know a hell of a lot about. Um, your HIA, I mean, how does a surveyor end up on HIA? Um, your planning institute, you, you've got um, your, your certifiers, there's all these different things, as well as um, your country surveyors, you know, the, the, C, the what is it, CSN are they called, or uh, whatever they're called now, um, the institution, you, you know, there's so many things that you're on. and. I, under, I can understand why, because you do want to be involved in everything. 
how does it do it? And how'd you end up on so many? <laughs> well, the simple answer to that is because I've got a big mouth. Um, <laughs> people ask me a question and I tend to answer it. And all of a sudden people go, well, hang on, you understand all this stuff. You, you, you're passionate about this stuff. Would you join our board? Would you join this or whatever? And I go, no, oh, okay. And once you join a board, it's only a, a few more um, uh, steps um, before you're on the committee and then it's another step after that before you find sort of president or secretary or something. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having 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 opinions on things and not being afraid to express them is how I ended up there. I don't actually put my hand up for it. I've never actually said I want to be that job or want to be that job. I always get like a nudge in the back saying, "Oh, you'd be really good at that." You know, yeah. you, you step forward and do that. And yeah. Anyway, that's how it worked out. Yeah, because I mean, some of them aren't. I mean, housing industry of Australia. You, oh well, I can explain that one. That that one's a little bit more sophisticated. The um, Kylie at work, she she's the finance officer and sort of does yeah. most of the advertising. Not that we do much. I'm very lucky that most of our stuff has been word of mouth. Mm. But Kylie suggested one day that we um, join the HIA because obviously surveyors and planners and engineers do a lot of work for builders. Yeah. So she thought it'd be a good idea, and, and I said, "No, okay, I reckon that's a good idea." So we joined. Simple as that. Anyway, um, not too much time passed, and all of a sudden I get a phone call from the CEO of HIA. And, um, he said, look, he said, obviously we're the peak body for builders. He said, and our board is mainly made up of builders or people in the building industry. Yeah. But we figured out a few years ago that um, um, there are people that are associated with the building industry that might be valuable on our board. So we, we've actually got a solicitor uh, who's our current president, and um, he he deals in contract law with builders, and that's how we got to be with the HIA. Yeah. And somebody suggested, well, maybe we should have somebody else that's um, on the board. Um, and somebody said, oh, you know, a surveyor. Somebody said a, an engineer. Somebody said a planner. And somebody piped up and said, why well, not somebody who seems to know all of those things? <laughs> so this when I get a phone call saying, would you join our board? I went, yeah, you don't get paid for this, do you? He went, no. Nah. I went, yeah. oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I joined the board. I thought it'd be helpful. And I, I, I also got to admit that I thought I'd get some work out of it, uh, which I have. Yeah. Um, but once again, because I have a fairly big mouth and um, have opinions on things, uh, as time went by, I ended up being um, president of the HIA. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because you've got the HIA council, Port Stephens Council. Um, how long have you been yeah. on that for? Oh, nine years. Mm, okay. And so are you deputy mayor now or you're just a councillor? What's the... De- deputy mayor. Yeah. 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 So... Deputy <laughs> mayor of council, president of the HIA, board member of the Association of Australian Certifiers, yeah. uh, chairman of the Hunter Water Corporation. Um, oh, I, missed, I missed that advisor. one. Yeah, they're just the ones I can think of on a Sunday night yeah. in front of the fire. Yeah. So, it, um, you know, and running your business and everything, it um, must make it very hard. Well, I've been very lucky because I've ha- I've got some extraordinarily good employees. I mean, yeah. top top class, really good guys and, and gals. Mm. Um, I've also got some former employees that have gone on some very important roles who... Um, 
you know, constantly contact me and thank me for, um, um, the, you know, the time that they had learning from me and from Keith Budnick and from others. Um, and, yeah, I've just been very lucky in that regard, yeah. Mm. Do any of your other staff have any any input into those positions or do they sit on any boards or anything or it's just you? No, a lot of people ask me, would, uh, would my staff like to join this board or that board or yeah. do that or the other? But none of them have much inclination to do that. That's number one. But number number two, they are so busy, they yeah. couldn't even imagine doing such a thing. Yeah. In fact, many of them actually suggest that maybe I might want to pull back and not quite do as much and actually put in a bit more time at work, give them <laughs> a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, I um, I just can't believe that you've got so many on the run especially when you've got your own business and everything as well. I know what it was like when I was, you know, sitting on a couple of committees and stuff like that and the extra time that took up just going to those meetings or, you know, writing reports or doing bits and pieces for them. And, you know, that was two, I think. <laughs> it is difficult. I mean, if, if you're trying to run your business or do what I do at work and you got people ringing up, how much to do this survey and can this land be subdivided and how much will it cost if I do? And you're dealing with all that and then you throw in amongst that, just in the middle of it, somebody will walk in the door at the office and uh, or, or ring me or email me or text message me or whatever mm. and say, oh, I've contacted council three times and they won't fix that pothole. I need to see a councillor. So you have to suddenly stop what you're doing and completely change your focus and deal with that. It's not easy. No. Um, but... Um, I still do. I like helping people, and it's kind of rewarding to do that. And, and I think that shows in everything that you've said so far about, um, you know, being able to help someone or, you know, give them a foot up somewhere, or all that sort of thing. Giving back to the community, giving back to the industry. Yeah, you can see it. Um, certain certain surveyors have that passion to want to do that, and others are just there for the job. Brian might, I think, deserves a medal. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've spoken to Brian. No, I haven't. But, uh, well, maybe he might be a good person to do a podcast with. Um, um, Brian might in the Hunter area. He he just runs these, oh, I don't even know what the correct term is. It's sort of like a um, unofficial workshop for surveyors, uh, graduate surveyors looking to get through to get registered. Oh, okay. And it's, it's just... The feedback is just so positive. And he helped out Guy Robertson, who's one of my uh, guys who got registered last year in the middle of COVID. Because he got registered in the middle of COVID, they didn't have their normal um, um, ceremony where they hand out the, the certificates of competency. So Guy only had his last week. Yeah, I saw the, that. Yeah, Guy, Guy got the, the Neil Ryan uh, Award for Best um, Result in Urban Surveying, for example. Now I'd, I'd like to pat myself on the back or pat my staff on the self staff on the back and say, oh, you know, we help Guy do that, but I can't. I know that um, Guy really is a passionate, dedicated sort of a character himself, but he got a lot of help from Brian Mott. So, mm -hmm. um, and these these workshops he was running. So I'm um, I'm putting it there. I'm saying Brian Mott got Guy that award, not Lamotti Group or anybody at our office. We helped, but Brian Mott was the main main yeah. dude.
Yep. Taking that time to uh, help guide and mentor. Yeah. Players. That's awesome. That's so good to see. How how do you think? Um, what what's your take on the future of our industry? Well, I would suggest that very few industries are as dynamic and fluid as ours. I mean, mm. it wasn't all that long ago. Everybody was still using mechanical theodolites and steel bands. Yeah. And then fairly quickly we moved into electronic theodolites with um, you know, infrared and laser measurement techniques. And now, of course, we've got all the, the satellites and um, um, GPS as well as all the computers. But if, if, um, if nothing changes from a, hang, how can I put it, from a civil point of view, um, and all this technology continues to evolve, um, it, it's going to be really interesting. People will not really understand the mass. They'll lose the ability to use the mass that we all used to use. Nobody reduces a slope anymore. I mean, I can still remember, you know, when you got a mechanical instrument and you had to lay a peg in it was down a slope, you actually had to work out, you know, the slope distance and they had to hold it at a specific height. And mm. um, I still remember those days. But everything's done with computers and electronic stuff now. But if some hacker were to somehow come in and destroy, you know, all our computers somehow, and you can't say that's not a possibility, it might be remote, but it's uh, still a possibility, there'd be very few people could actually operate in the survey profession. But if they don't do that, it's constantly changing. You know, the, the, um, you've got GPS where you can now get a, get a uh, pole, hold it out at an angle from the corner of a wall, Crazy. and it can... Yeah, it can figure out the, the actual uh, coordinates of the point at the base of that pole. Mm. So how good is that? You don't, but the trouble is you don't need to be all that clever. Once you, you say you spend four years doing a degree um, and you just walk around holding a pole and it gives you the answer because yeah. somebody else, somebody sort of in computer science has, has figured out how to make that maths happen and the surveyor's not using maths, they're just walking around rather bored off their head. They're thinking about the footy or the whatever they're thinking about holding the pole on the corner and something was, is doing the maths for them. That, I think, is a shame. Equally, I think it makes the uh, profession faster, more professional, um, and even less understandable to the general public than what surveying used to be. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's... Um, I just kind of wonder how far this technology is going to go. There's people that say oh. that... They don't, you know, we're not going to need surveyors soon. Well, good luck with that is all I can <laughs> say. Because even surveyors of the highest calibre, uh, you know, are struggling to keep up with the um, the technology as it evolves. Mm. Um, you put that in the hands of untrained people, that's going to be a very interesting uh, scenario. But I don't believe that. I believe that... Um, actually, I'll give you an example of where technology has created a hell of a lot of work for us. People more and more know how to look up six maps. Yes. And when they do, suddenly they'll see the battery line runs through their neighbour's shed. <laughs> and they suddenly ring up and say, oh, I need a survey. I think I own half my neighbour's shed. So you try to tell, well, you know, you can't really rely on that. Um, the the overlay of the boundaries is not guaranteed. You know, there's a... Um, a note on six maps to say, or disclaimer to say that they don't, they don't guarantee that. But um, you know, it might be right, it might not be. But the only way you can tell us from a ground survey, and they go, yeah, no, I think I want to check. 
I want, I want to order a ground server. So six maps, I reckon at least two times a week I get a job owing to errors in six maps. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And usually in rural scenarios, but oftentimes in, um, in urban scenarios as well. And people just refuse to accept that it's not a, an exact overlay and it's given us work. So I don't know, people can say technology may lead to the point you don't need surveyors. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that you'll still need surveyors to sort out disputes and mm. handheld GPS is a long way from being accurate enough for an urban fence, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's fine to do your detail survey and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I remember I had one client ringing up and said, oh, I had this bloke, you know, coming out with a drone and showing me all this wonderful stuff and he did this conjure in detail and he did far less time and could be done far cheaper than what you charged me. And I said, yeah, okay, well, you get the drone to go down and take the lid off the uh, sewer manhole and get the invert and then <laughs> and the invert off the um, stormwater pit out the front and get in under that tree or whatever needs to be done and then I'll I'll um, accept your point. In the meantime, we're going to keep charging what we charge. Yeah. Yeah. That was about three years ago, and I'm still doing work for that that company at the same rate. Yeah. The the drones, I think, are maybe... Well, I don't know. The drones and the scanners maybe are the biggest issues with people just being able to use the equipment but not understanding that you've got to, you know, do your ground truthing or, you know, all that kind of stuff to make it all fit properly. Well, I agree. I mean... You can see you can see some pretty spectacular results from from drones, and if you're doing big piles of coal or mm. um, big holes in the ground from a mine or something, it can be pretty good stuff, yeah. and it can be pretty quick, and it can be far more accurate than uh, what we could ever do with a with a jigger and a tape or a table station and a and laser or something. Yeah, but it's not necessarily the answer. There it, there are so many things required on an urban survey or um, any survey really that just can't be achieved with drones or aerial photography. They got their place. That's the that's the biggest trick. Is everybody in the profession and everybody that's ever asking for a survey to do something is to understand what is um, the objective, what what's the yeah. data you really want, and what is the best equipment or perhaps not the best equipment, the only equipment that might achieve that particular um, result. And it's not always a drone. It's not always LIDAR. It's not always a theodolite or a jigger and, and laser. It's oftentimes a combination. And somebody who can figure out how is the most efficient way to get to that particular result is the kind of person that the rest of the world wants to see. Yeah. Or do it with. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the clients that you get where they say, oh, uh, we need we need this and we need this file and it's like okay well we can do that but what are you going to do with that information oh well we just need a point cloud or you know we need this yeah yeah but what are you actually going to do with it because it you know <laughs> you got to try and explain to them what information they're going to be given for what they've asked and explain to them how it's going to work and then they kind of go oh oh, no, well, actually, we need this and we need that because we're going to be doing this and that. And they really are a little bit clueless as to what they're asking for in the first place. So those asking those questions are so important when it comes to it. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. When anybody rings me 
no matter how small the job is, I really do try to find out what is it they're looking to do. Because if I can understand what it is they're looking to do, then I can understand how to best help them. Mm. I mean, you just get so many people around and say, oh, hi, I own number 13 Smith Street. Um, How much for a survey? I say, (laughs) yeah, do you you want a contour and detail survey? You're looking to build something? You're looking to buy exactly what it is. And if you drill down and you find out what it is they're after, then you can really help them. And Mm. I also find out they're very grateful that you've taken the time to try and understand their particular situation and help them out. And that tends to uh, result in, in further work because I'll tell their friends, oh, I ran this guy, he was really helpful, you know, and uh, he, he explained to me how it works or why we didn't know that or why we didn't know this and, yeah, it all worked out well. So that is the number one trick is to find out what the client really wants and why they want it and then provide them that, that amount of data at a reasonable price and they'll just come back forever. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Uh, in your time working as a surveyor and actually doing all of the different jobs that you do, do you ever have, like, have you got publications or books or, you know, things that you read up on that are kind of like a Bible to you that you refer back to or journals or anything like that? Or... I like the really old stuff, you know. Um, what's it called? Marking the um, oh, I can't think what it was. Marking the it was, a, it was a book about the original alignment surveys. So mm-hmm. many surveyors don't understand how alignment surveys work. Mm. Um, it's called marking the landscape or something. I can't remember now. Um, and then of course there's Hormans and things like that. They're the older stuff. But in terms of modern stuff. Um, things are changed so quickly. It's unbelievable how quickly change. People often say to me, oh, Paul, you know so many different things from different aspects. Why don't, why don't you write some of this down? And I say, because before the ink was dry, it would have changed. The rules would have changed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I've never written any myself. Um, but, yeah, Horman, um, I'm sure it's called Mark on the Landscape and a couple of older ones really help, you, help surveyors understand how things were done. And there's still a lot of places where you have to rely on those old alignment surveys and um, some of Hallman's principles. So, yeah, I'd recommend to anybody that they become very au fait with those documents. Yeah. I remember when I worked for, for Jack and there was times that he would get me to look something up in in there to check on something, you know, to, to help me get a bit more of an understanding of, you know, what the kind types of surveys we were doing and stuff like that. He'd say, you know, go and have a look at this or, you know, you want to know a little bit more, you'd go and grab the book and have a little bit of a, a read and everything. So I just know I do a lot of a lot of searching online now for different things, how things work or that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I was just wondering. Well, and that's a really interesting point that you raised because um, – once, if somebody said, go read Hallman or go do this, you actually had to go and find a copy of that book. Yes. But now everything's online. So mm-hmm. you've never had a better opportunity to learn about how things were or how they should be than you have now because everything is online. Yeah. Search engines, Google in particular, has got a lot to offer. Yeah. You just uh, need to make sure that you actually 
do that little bit of research and not just take the first thing you see as gospel. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> the, the internet is not the truth. No, no. A, but I read it on a, Google. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a bit of a problem sometimes too. What's the best work advice you've ever heard? Oh, best work advice I've ever heard is to make yourself irreplaceable but don't act it. Oh, that's a good one. Hmm. What about the worst? What about the what? The worst. The worst. The worst. Oh. <laughs> worst work advice. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know how to articulate that. Um, probably to overstate your ability. Um, I can't yeah. quite articulate it in the short term, but... We had one particular individual who um, did a, a work interview with us and absolutely insisted uh, that he knew everything there was to know about civil care. Um, so on that basis, he was employed. He turned out he knew very little about civil care. <laughs> so his employment didn't last as long as it yeah. we might have had. Yeah. That there's a point of being... Uh confident but yeah not overstating as you said overstating it it's you've got to yeah. be confident to to get the job but yeah <laughs> i would never and i've been using civil cad forever i would never ever ever say that <laughs> i was an expert at it yeah i know it's, uh, again it's it, civil cad is a program that covers so many yeah. uh, various aspects you can use it as an engineer you can use it as a survey you can use it for a whole range of reasons but um yes this particular individual i'm referring to um oh Matt, Matt, you heard that did you but i did it was the beer bottle last time and this time we've got the log falling out of the fire was it <laughs> <laughs> oh you remember that from last time? Uh, yep. <laughs> i think we need to do interviews at three o'clock in the afternoon not six <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, just Civil Cat is a very, very, very broad, or well, it's now anyway, it was yeah. a very broad program and um, mm. uh, he had us believe that he sort of knew everything about it and he didn't. Mm. So that would be the worst advice I could say is if you don't actually understand um, how something works, then say, no, look, I've only got a basic understanding yes. but I'm really willing, I'm really keen to learn how it would work. But you tell me you can do it all, and you can't, yeah, that's just going to upset me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What's the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've been surveying? Oh, man, how long have you got? I have. <laughs> that's one of the reasons I love this job. There's so many funny things happen. Um, one of the funniest things, I'll tell you one of the funniest things, was very early on at Budnick and Ransom, when the two partners were there, Keith Budnick and, and Bob Ranson, and the secretary there, whose name was Dorothy, she had a daughter that was like uh, one day different in age to me. I forget whether she was a day older or a day younger, but I, I remember she was one day different. Yeah. Anyway, I'd only been at Budnick and Ranson for about mm, maybe six months, and um, <coughs> I was out one night and I ran, ran into the secretary's daughter. Mm. And I was talking to her for a while and... Um, um, I happened to mention to her that I really liked her mum. She always seemed to like look after me. It was pretty good. 
And the daughter said, yeah, mum likes you too, but she's worried you're not going to last very long. And I said, oh, really? Why is that? She said, she thinks you're too cheeky to Keith. Because <laughs> uh, Keith was pretty hot-headed, yeah. but he was a funny man. Um, I went, oh, really? I said, didn't realise that. I thought, you know, it was two-way street. He'd give me hard time. i give hard time back. Mm. Anyway, I took it on board. And about two months went by. I nearly died of stress just trying to keep it in. But no matter what Keith did or said, I just keep it, kept it to myself. Never bit back. <laughs> and one day we're at Yarramalong Valley. It was springtime. It was a beautiful spring morning. It was early in the morning. Beautiful lush paddocks. And we're walking out through this paddock and Keith's got the jigger out of his shoulder and got a bundle of, I got the, the chain and a whole bunch of pegs or whatever with me. We walked through this paddock and it was a gorgeous morning. Mm. Anyway, Keith said, oh, what a cracker of a day. He said, why would you do anything else for a living when you can work in places like this and do this? I just nodded and I didn't say anything. And then then this flock of glass flew down, they landed in a tree. And he said, look at that. He said, you know, you never used to see them around here. He said, I'd never seen a glar until I was 21 and I worked in Grafton. Well, that was where I reached my tipping point. I just couldn't help it anymore. I said, was that the first place you ever went that had a mirror? <laughs> after two months of keeping it all in, I just, well, I was rolling around the ground. I thought, if I get the sack, I get the sack. I can't, I just can't deal with it. it was just, and he's, he's got the jigger over his shoulder. I remember uh, looking at, I was packing myself laughing. <laughs> and I looked up at him and he's looked down at me. When I had my eyes, he just went, ha, bloody ha, and kept walking. And I thought, nah, Dot had to have got that wrong. If I could say that to him and get away with it, then um, yeah. it must be all right. So, from that point onwards, I never ceased giving that man a hard time because he deserved everything he got. But by God, did he give it to everybody else. By God, did he give it to everybody else. He was the biggest stirrer on the planet bar none. Well, I guess it made uh, work interesting. <laughs> oh, it did. It was never a quiet moment. Mm. Never a quiet moment. I, I could tell you some stories, but um, you'd have to only publish this uh, um, after 9.30 at night or whenever the... Um, <laughs> Whenever the ratings change. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any control over that. <laughs> Unfortunately. Oh, well, well, well. I've seen guys fall in creeks. I've seen guys stuck in um, mud. I've been one of them. I walked across this creek one day. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. I, had the, I was on the jigger this day and uh, Keith was there and, a, and, a, and another Cheney and there was this little creek. It was maybe two metres wide and had the most beautiful white sandy bottom you've ever seen. Uh-huh. And um, Keith and 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 through the the Cheney, they'd gone ahead of me, and they'd walked through this creek, and you could see their footprints in the white sand at the bottom. Mm. And I got the jigger over my shoulder, and I um, their their footprints were maybe two meters apart, and I walked straight in the middle of Keith's footprints and Fru's footprints on this white uh, sandy bottom, and the creek was maybe only six inches deep or one hundred fifty mil deep. Yeah, and I tried it. And I just happened to pick a bit that was like quicksand. And I sunk down with the jigger over my shoulder. Um, it was almost a brand new jigger on a brand new set of legs. Yeah. And I sunk down, um, to my waist in this quicksand and I couldn't move. And we didn't even have any two-way radios. Back then, It was even though it was a rural job, we were quite dependent on uh, loud voices and yelling to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just stuck. I couldn't get in. I couldn't get out. I couldn't move. There was just nothing I could do. And I had to wait till Keith and Fru finally figured out that I must have been stuck and they come wandering back down the hill to find out where the hell I was. And, um, of course, when Keith got back, he wasn't really concerned about me at all. No, he was no. concerned 
digger. Yeah. <laughs> I got the digger. And once, he, once the digger was safe and dry and whatever, um, that was all good. But that very same year caused another um, funny thing to happen. Warnervale Airport, which is in the Central Coast, they wanted to... No, it wasn't the airport. There was a brick factory up the road from uh, Warnervale. They wanted to extend their um, um, operation and they had a chimney on, the, on their um, brick kiln. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they wanted to make this chimney higher. <clears throat> but before they get approval to do that, there had to be the relationship between the end of the runway and the top of this um, brick chimney had to be determined so you could see how far off the line of the runway was and what the difference in height was. Yeah. So fortunately, that was a fairly easy thing to do, even with the technology that was available back then, because uh, you had a direct line of sight from the end of the runway to the top of this tower. Basic trick, yep. Yep. So it was pretty simple stuff, really. Um, So I'm on the jigger, and I'm set up on the end of this runway, and for all intents and purposes, the runway was shut. The airport was shut. The um, thing had been booked in two weeks in advance, uh, when we arrived, we went and saw the traffic control and told him, you know, confirmed that we're there to do what we're doing. Yeah. And he effectively shut the runway. Mm-hmm. He said, there's nobody around anyway. There's just a few uh, light aircraft out there just, um, you know, doing some repairs or whatever. Anyway, um, so I'm set up in the middle of the runway about maybe 70 or 80 metres from the end of the runway because if you, if you got right at the end of the runway, you couldn't see the brick chimney. Yeah, yeah. 70 or 80 metres back, you could. And I'm just sliding down the middle of the runway. I'm reading um, uh, angles and vertical angles and, and measuring because we can actually measure with the targets uh, to the top of this chimney. Anyway, this guy comes out of uh, one of the hangars and he goes right down the far end of the runway and he turns around <coughs> and I saw him and I thought, um, oh, he's just testing his motor or something. This, this won't be anything. Anyway, so he starts coming up the runway, and he starts coming up the runway, and he starts coming up the runway. <laughs> and all of a sudden, at the last minute, I thought, this guy's actually going to take off. <laughs> so I've just bolted off the side of the runway and dived in the dirt on the side of the runway, and the plane took off, and I reckon the wheels, you know, went over the top of the jigger by maybe, I don't know, two, three metres. Um, probably if you had a stage, it was probably quite safe, but I wasn't prepared to take that yeah, chance. So yeah. I'm right. <laughs> anyway. So Keith, I forget what Keith was doing exactly, but he, he wasn't on the runway. He was off to one side and he's seen all this. And he came from over and he said, what are you doing? So I explained it all to him. You know what he was dirty about? He was dirty about that I didn't grab the jigger and yes. take it off with. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, don't worry it. about your life. Just yeah. worry about the yeah. equipment. <laughs> yeah, so when he fell on the creek, I didn't, I, I laughed. <laughs> that was about three days later. <laughs> oh, karma! <laughs> hmm. No, I could, I could. If I was ever going to write a book, it'd be on the funny things that happened in Pennsylvania. Because oh my god, I've seen some funny things. Yep, yep. There's, uh, there has been some, some funny stories, and I think uh, it's probably would. You'd get a good book out of it, I reckon. <laughs> I, I would. <laughs> And I, and I love hearing other guys tell their funny stories too, don't worry. Yeah, yes. I got electrocuted when I was like eight months pregnant or something doing a survey, eight or nine months pregnant. Really? <laughs> yeah. What, 240 volts on electric fence, 240 volts? On the electric fence, we, we had to climb through, but um, I didn't quite 
fit through properly and yeah, I've got a bit of a zap happening. <laughs> so how old's that child now? Uh, he's nearly 20. He's okay. <laughs> okay, he's normal. He doesn't walk around like vibrating or anything, no? Uh, he's normal. Yeah, that was <laughs> that that was a, a yeah, that was a bit of a shock that one. <laughs> pardon the pun. Yeah, pardon the pun. Trudging through through paddocks and yeah, through creeks and all this sort of stuff and my boss carrying the instrument and I'm carrying the lighter stuff and having to climb through things and yeah, it's uh it's funny when you look back at it. I went to the doctor and you know, went for a checkup and everything and I was like um I got electrocuted by a fence. Do, do you think everything will be okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, did it hurt? And I went, oh, it just gave me a little zap. So it didn't, it, I don't know, it didn't have a real big bang or anything. So he was like, oh, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> like, oh, phew. <laughs> yeah, but those electric fences, they vary. Like, the ones that are... Um run off solar or 12-volt battery or something, they can they can hurt. But even one that's sort of run off a 240-volt system, they are supposed to be transformed down to 12 volts like, like the rest of them. Mm. But I find if I get hit by one of those, they hurt a lot more. I mean, I've one made me do cartwheels one day. I oh. was actually on the stick and um, there was a side fence and I was getting a shot right on the fence. I didn't realise it was an electric fence. Yeah, but yeah. On my shoulder, it... Um, um, halfway through getting the shot, bang! It hit me. I thought the horse next door had kicked me. I actually did a cartwheel sideways. Oh. So I don't know if somebody had deliberately um, up the ante on that one or, or what, but that was probably the most um, mm. powerful hit I ever got. And I did a dead set cartwheel sideways when it hit me in the shoulder. Felt oh. like a horse had kicked me. That's what that yeah. one felt like. Uh, it wasn't that bad for me, so I'm probably very lucky. <laughs> well, I've got lots of twelve volt ones to in, in farms and things so I know what they feel like they're not mm. necessarily positive but... and the other thing about fences and so those is snakes have learned that if they're in the middle of a paddock they're a target for a bird but if they walk right underneath the fence it's very hard for a bird to get them so by evolutionary process snakes have, le- snakes have learned to walk under fences mm. where do surveyors spend half their time the near fence. boundaries <laughs> which often have fences on so I reckon surveyors run into snakes far more often than anybody else that oh. works in a rural Yeah. No doubt about it. Yep. Yeah. I've I've been pretty lucky. I think I've seen like one or two. I've hardly come across any snakes um, in the time that really? I've Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, we've done a few rural jobs and stuff. <coughs> But yeah, even those ones really didn't come across, and whether it was just the wrong time of year or I don't know. So yeah, I've been I've been we, very lucky. And I know you've interviewed BJ Hammonds before. Yeah. BJ and I were doing a rural job one day, and we started walking down towards this creek. And the further we got down, the steeper it got, and it just got steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper until it got to the point where all of a sudden we both lost our footing. Mm. Um, and we slid down this hill. It was just like out of control, all the survey equipment, jiggers, GPS, um, everything, bag of pegs, axes, sliding down the hill like an avalanche. Mm-hmm. And we were side by side. And all of a sudden there was this, you were sliding down incredibly steep and there was a flat ledge of rock. 
And as we approached this flat ledge of rock, we could see there was a black snake on it. And the black snake's looking at us. It's looking up the hill at us, coming down like an avalanche at it. The black snake was absolutely horrified. You wouldn't think a snake's got eyes like saucers, but it did. Now, somehow we slid across this ledge of rock and we just flopped off the other side and, and slid down the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 metres and ended up in the in the river at the bottom. Oh, no. All right, so we got there and we're sort of padding ourselves down and we look at the equipment to see what's broken. Somehow, by some miracle, um, apart from a few grazes, neither of us had much in the way of injuries. Yeah. The equipment was all intact and we're double-checking ourselves to try and figure out if we'd been bitten by this snake or not. <laughs> we hadn't, but we don't know what happened to the poor snake. We reckon he's still in therapy somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> These two blokes just sliding down a hill. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't walk out that way. We walked up the creek and found another way out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, but um... on that job, that's another interesting thing that happened. We were we were um, trying to do the creek traverse by getting shots in the middle of the uh, the river. We had a bit of access to the sky with the GPS. Yeah. And but then you had to get offsets to the bank. Mm-hmm. And I walked over the bank in you know probably meter deep water, and. I just held out the tape and it was just talking about the straw that broke the camel's back. There was, a, there was a log that had just been somehow just sitting on the edge of the bank. It had been sitting there for years. And I just touched it and it rolled off and it landed on me and it pushed me out of the water. And um, fortunately, my head was above the water, but BJ had to put all the gear down and with all the strength that the Peribus possessed, we were just able to um, lift this log enough to get me out from underneath it. But if the water had been, I don't know, half a metre deeper, I probably yeah. would have drowned that day. Yeah, it's and I you can have all the WHS systems in the world. I do not know. I've often thought about this. What could have been done different to mm. stop that happening? Because it was just a log covered in moss on the side of the bank that just looked like it had been there forever. Probably had. Yeah, just one little touch on it and loosened it, and bang, it fell on me. Mm. Yeah, you just never know what uh, what can happen out there. <laughs> And safety is very, very important, but yeah, there's just certain things you can't control, is there? Well, I don't, I, like I said, I, for love of money, I do not know how I could have done that any different. Yeah. Geez, you were lucky. I was. Yeah. Very much so. But I've always felt that I've been very lucky in a whole bunch of things, and that's just one. <laughs> well, you're one of those people. Everything good <laughs> always happens. <laughs> Not always, but the good far outweighs the bad. Yeah, that's nice. So what motivates you? Oh, what motivates me? I don't know. Um, I've got this thing that I just like to help people all the time and um, um, that's probably it. I just feel like I want to help people. When clients ring me and they want something done, it's, I don't suddenly think, oh, I can make money out of this. I, I think, oh, I can help this person and get on with it. And that's exactly what brings me undone with everything else because I want to help people on the HIA. So, oh, yeah, no, you're a real helpful guy. Well, you just move up the ladder and you're a helpful guy. You get on council. Well, you're a helpful guy. You'd be deputy mayor. So um, it's that, I don't know, it's a weird thing. I, I just get a, a kick out of helping people, I suppose. Yeah. 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 I'm the same. I'll do... I'll do whatever I can to help somebody. If I can see that I've got something that can help them achieve their goals or get to where they want to get to, I'm quite happily the first one in to 
to help them do it and see them succeed. I think it's yeah, yeah. Well, I've never been mercenary, um, but you know, when you spend your whole life helping people, they tell people that you'll, you know they help you, and so people keep coming through the door. Mm. So, um, you know, I might not be um, the wealthiest person on the planet, but I'm not starving to death either because mm. just helping people tends to bring money and work in the door. Yeah, reaps rewards in a different way. Mm. Mm. So you've been surveying for a while. What's the most unusual place that you've been when you've been surveying? Most unusual. Oh, okay. That's a good one. I've been inside caves. I've been at the top of extremely tall buildings. I've been in creeks with logs on me. <laughs> uh, I've been in tunnels. Um, what would be the most unusual place? Hmm. I don't know. Up and down cliffs, following old portion surveys that were done 100 years prior that are so steep, so remote that nobody's ever fenced them. You're still finding they're old. Um, <coughs> pegs and lost picks, that's, that's probably not unusual. That's very enjoyable. Um, extraordinarily busy roads, being out in the middle of extraordinarily busy roads. St that you, when you're standing out there and you, you're shaking your head thinking, nobody else would stand out here. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and these days, you know, you'd probably be forced to do it at midnight with traffic control and yeah. who knows what all around you. Yeah. 30 years ago, um, that wasn't necessarily the case. I actually can't answer that question. I've been in some pretty unusual places and um, I, I just can't think off the top of my head which is the most unusual. I've been in place, places where it's been extraordinarily hot, in places where it's been extraordinarily cold, extraordinarily windy, extraordinarily hard to get to. How far have you had to travel for, you know, in your surveying? Where's the furthest you've been? Um, at one stage, I owned a quarter share in a company called OzServe International. We were doing a lot of work in Dubai. Mm -hmm. um, but I never did anything that you could um, call field work in Dubai. And a lot of all that work was like emailed back and plans and reports were done uh, in our office here in Australia. I have been to Dubai a couple of times, but not to do survey work. But within Australia, um, Never gone out of New South Wales for any purpose, um, but pretty much all over New South Wales. Um, um, in, in, in just in last in the last six months, we've done jobs that involve work at Burke, one at Broken Hill, uh, as far north as the Queensland border, Lennox Head, you know, Tweed Heads, um, Ballina, places like that. As far south as Eden and um, a little bit further south than that and pretty much everywhere in between. Mm. Got offices, you know, the head office is in um, Port Stephens at, at Raymond Terrace and then we've got an office at um, um, Norellan, another a smaller office at um, Barrow. Oh, yeah. And uh, I I like my skiing, so I, I get as much work as I can down the um, Snowy Mountains at Jindabyne as well. Yeah, okay. Hmm. So you've, you've been skiing for a long time. I think you mentioned that you 
enjoyed your skiing before? Ah, uh, yes, I've been skiing since I was six years old. Yeah. Mm. I think I was about. I think I was about four when I started. Mm. Four. Yeah. Yep. I you want to take me on? Uh huh. You've been. You want to take me on? You started young. You'd be more experienced. No, I've, I haven't skied for quite a few years now, but I was one of those, you know, little kids with the little um, little vests on that, you know, you, you'd go, shit, what was that? <laughs> we just yeah. Go down. <laughs> yeah, both my goals were, were like that. They're just, yeah, little flashes of, of green light as they go past, yeah. Yeah, used to love it when we were little. Mum and Dad would go down for a, go down for a week and... Dad put us into the ski school and we'd meet all these kids there and go off on little adventures and all that sort of stuff. It used to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think they really do. I think they run a good um, school down there. They, they seriously make it fun for the little kids and the parents can go ski. It works really well. Yeah. 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 Okay, so what's your guilty pleasure? Oh. Well, I can only pick one. Uh, hey, you can choose more than one. <laughs> um, well, I've never really changed in this regard. On a Friday night at the end of a work and a week, I do like to sit down and have a, a fairly solid drink to relax. Mm-hmm. And then on a Saturday after cricket, I like to do the same. So by Sundays, I'm, I'm <laughs> the liver's begging for mercy. Um, so... That'd be about it. I, I'm not really a gambler. I'm not really a punter. I mean, I do a bit, but not really. Um, yeah, that'd be it. My Friday night drink and my Saturday night drink. Um, yeah. It's been the same for an awful long time. Yeah. Friday to get over a week's work and Saturday to get over whatever sport I played on the Saturday. <laughs> the only problem with that is when I go skiing, it's like sport every day, so it's every night. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you do to relax besides drinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like living on this small farm and, you know, um, fencing. And I split firewood a lot today. I yep. spent a lot of time on it, not with a hydraulic machine, with a, an actual um, block splitter, splitting, mm-hmm. splitting firewood, you know, just from years and years and years of um, hitting pegs in or whatever. Uh, and hitting cricket balls, it's a it's a natural thing to swing that uh, block splitter, and it was what resulted in my having to get two shoulders reconstructed. But um, now I'm, what was the last one? It was uh, November, the October last year. I went out to May, so a couple of weeks ago I just started doing a little bit and a little bit, and then I did about three hours today. It's not even hurting now. Um, and all the pain that I used to get in my shoulders is all gone because they were reconstructed yep. and the strength has um, slightly come back. So oddly, one of the things I do do to relax um, other than have a drink on a Friday and Saturday night is split firewood manually. Yeah. It's um, it's probably very cathartic, I think. Pardon me, Agnes, what does cathartic mean? Well, just it's something that just, to me, cathartic means it's just something that um it just gives you that peace that it's it's your release something that you love to do that gives you uh it's your own little thing um for me 
going to the beach and just watching waves is just cathartic. It just completely chills me. It just, I, I forget about everything else. It's just my own little, my own little thing. <laughs> well, I would agree. And I think most humans do enjoy that. Just looking at water or especially waves and it rolling in on a nice yeah. day. It's very cathartic now that I know what that means. Um, <laughs> and I do enjoy those things too, but I can't always do that. But when I'm here, um, you know, doing a good job putting a fence up or yeah. I don't know, just something of a rural type nature, or including um, splitting firewood, I find all those things relaxing. Yeah. Mainly, mainly, I think I'll tell you what I put it down to, is not particularly liking neighbours because the number <laughs> of people that have been in my office over the years and saying, oh, I've got this problem with my neighbour, you know, and they'll spend hundreds or thousands of dollars yeah. trying to get a survey done to, you know, make their neighbour move a fence 50 mil or 100 mil or something. Mm. It's just crazy. So I learned a long time ago that neighbours um, aren't necessarily the best thing you're ever going to have. And if you can find somewhere to live where you don't have neighbours, all the better. And I'm pretty lucky where I've got, I don't have neighbours. Um, well, I do. You got they're one, you said one. But, yeah, so they're, they're like, you can't see them? I can see one. Not okay. from where, I, when I sit on this side of the house, you cannot see anybody or anything mm. for a long, long way. If I sat on the other side of the house, um, I can. I can see one, but they're about half a kilometre away. Yeah, right. Yeah. And but can that- we just pause for a sec? I just need to go and turn the stove down. Sure. Go for it. Beer in hand. <laughs> Right when the other one was empty. That's, that's oh, so it wasn't, you didn't really have to go to the oven. I know that now. <laughs> I actually did. I actually did, but I, yeah. I wasn't going to be upset. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it is Sunday night. Leave me alone. Nah, it's all good. It's all good. All right. If you see a puddle on the ground, do you walk around it, jump over it, or jump in it? <laughs> Oftentimes I'll jump in it. Yes. <laughs> or, or, or at least get a stick in private to see whether I can jump in it before I um, get around. I, but curiosity gets the better of me. That, that's that's the little kid in me to see who who's the serious ones that are going to walk around it, the ones that don't quite want to, you know, get in and play, and the other ones that just jump straight in. <laughs> I'd jump straight in. <laughs> straight in. I had no fear. I would jump straight in. And I, in a lot of things, I still do jump straight in, I can tell you. But with the puddles these days, I, yeah, maybe I'll get a stick and poke it. But as long as it's not too deep, I'm jumping in anyway. <laughs> nice. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Oh, that always tears me. The ability to fly. Yeah. But you know what? Now that we've got drones, I can replace that power with the drone, so therefore maybe um, the ability to see through walls or something mm-hmm. might be, um, particularly when you're looking for RMs. You can see through the ground, see if that bloody pipe's down there or that concrete boss <laughs> down there or not. God, I'd love that superpower. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, um, wouldn't it? The holes you've dug where there's just been nothing. <laughs> and no reason why it's gone. Mm. None. So frustrating. Mm. I wonder if they actually put it there in the first place. Exactly. That's why if there was a time machine and people, you had one opportunity, people say, you can have one go at this, you can go forward or go back. I'd say, I'm going back. I want to know whether they actually put that arrow in there or not. Well, that's my next question. 
Sorry? So the next question, if you could go back in history, where would you go and why? <laughs> you just answered it. <laughs> I would go back um, to about 18 or 19, no, it was, I think it was about 18, 19. There was supposed to be a pipe at a property in Wellington, not far from Lake Barrandong. Uh-huh. We found three pipes out of this same portion survey and were had a really good, you know, um, bead on the on the um, azimuth corrections and the and the um, um, scale factors and everything else was involved. Yeah. And I reckon I could lay this pipe in within five centimetres of where it ought to, ought to have been, given the other marks we found. But inexplicably, it wasn't there. And I reckon we dug up half an acre trying to find this friggin' pipe. <laughs> it wasn't there. And the only thing I can think of was because it was on the top of the hill that over the 80 or 90 years in between time, um, it had been exposed to wind and rain and the, the earth had actually washed away and the pipe had disappeared. Because if it wasn't for that, then the surveyor had to have been a liar, which I don't think he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there was no, nothing physical up there to indicate why this bloody pipe wasn't there. So if I had one choice, one spot where to go, I'm going to that bloody pipe in uh, Wellington to see if that guy <laughs> actually did put that pipe in. <laughs> and what you make of it? <laughs> yeah. And ask him to put a few recovery marks in or something so I could find a letter. <laughs> oh. If you were to uh, write a memoir, what would the title be? <laughs> I don't know. Read it quick because, as I said, the rules are changing all the time. That would be one thing that comes to <laughs> mind. But um, um, I actually did have a bit of title. There were so many funny things like seriously funny things that I've encountered in the profession that I often thought one day I wouldn't mind um, jotting them all down on paper. And I, I had a title for it, and I, I can't think what it is at the moment. If I, if I remember, I'll get back to you on that one. Get back to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. At a party, where will someone find you? In the middle of a crowd telling stories because I <laughs> have three beers and I've got to tell stories all the time. Uh, if I wasn't there, it'd be next to the fridge getting a beer. Yes, <laughs> we know that one. And lastly, what is something that you would tell your younger self? Oh. <laughs> <coughs> don't choke on me. Oh. <laughs> I don't know because I've... Not everything that's happened in my life has been good or, or brilliant, um, but I, I've come to realise a long time ago that I wouldn't change anything because even when something bad happened, somehow that led to something good happening. Yes. So um, I wouldn't, if you gave me the opportunity to go back and change anything, I'd be terrified to do so because I'd know if I stopped that bad thing happening, then I might not have done this or met that person or whatever and might not have moved forward. So. If I go back to my younger self, something, what would I change? Hmm. Or what advice would you give him? Hmm. <laughs> oh my God, have, oh, I, no. stopped, have I stopped you? <laughs> well, you yeah, have. That's very unusual. <laughs> um, but, you know, everything's kind of worked out all right. So I'm not sure if I could go back and give my younger self some advice or. Chance, I don't know. I honestly don't know what it would be. Yes, I've stumped. Maybe, maybe somebody who had gone back 20 years and gave me a Melbourne Cup winner at like 51 or something, I might have had a fair slab on it. Oh, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Hmm.
Mm. All right. Well, that is the end of my long questions. So all we've got left now is our quick shots where you just give me yes, no, hot, cold, all that kind of thing. So I'll just learn a little bit more about you. All right. All right. Here we go. Tea or coffee? Tea. Cat or dog? Both. Mm -hmm. Sunrise or sunset? Oh, I like <laughs> both, but I'm awake for more sunsets than I am for sunrises. Summer or winter? Mm, I like both, but I love my skiing, so I'd probably say winter. winter. And, and also I'd say when you're surveying, in the middle of winter, you can put, put, keep putting clothes on to get warm, but in the middle of summer, when it's 42 degrees, there's just nothing you can do to cool down. Yeah, agree totally. Uh, roller coasters, do you love or hate them? Love them. What would you take to a desert? What three things would you take to a desert island? Probably a land cruiser <laughs> and all my bits and pieces that are in it because that would give me about a thousand things. Um, some good company. Yep. And a map or something that told me where the nearest uh, landfall was in case I really had to try and make a swim for it. <laughs> Favourite song or artist? Ooh. I like all kinds of music. I don't have a particular type of music, so therefore there's thousands and thousands to choose from there. I've always been a Beatles fan, mm -hmm. an Elvis fan, but I also like Eminem, who sings rap. Um um, lately there's Kelsey Ballerina who's got a really good country song called Hole in the Bottle of Wine which I reckon is one of the catchiest and funniest songs I've heard in a long time mm -hmm. uh, all time favourite song or artist geez that's a hard one um, if I had to pick an all time favourite artist it would have to be the Beatles yep favourite movie favourite movie um, one that really comes to mind when people ask me there's a movie with Arnie Schwarzenegger called True Lies. That was a funny oh, movie. Oh, that's a good movie. That's a good movie. That yeah. yeah. Uh, Favourite book? Oh, <clears throat> I love reading books and I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And I reckon the Harry Potter books, are, if they're not the best series of books I've ever read, I don't know what what it is. The only one I can think of that's slightly more serious, if you like, but just as much fantasy is the Outlander series. They are good books too. That lady who wrote those, okay. she's pretty special. Yeah, okay. Introvert. If you haven't read them, no, if you no. haven't read read them. Just okay. take my word for it, read the Outlander series. The first oh. book in the series is called Outlander. Okay, I'll have to, um, I'll have to grab them. Introvert or extrovert? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> I'm a terrible introvert. Oh, look at me. <laughs> Definitely not an introvert. <laughs> Is your glass half full or half empty? No, I'm an optimist. It, um, it lets me down a lot because I have expectations that something will happen. Um, and when it doesn't, I get terribly disappointed. I'm a yeah. terribly big optimist. Yeah. One thing you'd never that, do again. That's, that's why they say 
That's why they say it's a good thing to be a pessimist because you're never disappointed. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I get disappointed quite often. <laughs> mm. One thing you'd never do again. Which you kind of kind of answered that one before, didn't you? Really? There isn't because yeah. you learn from everything that every mistake that you yeah. make. I know that's that's what I was saying. That I, mm. I, there's just not too much, if anything, I can think because everything I've done, good, bad, or otherwise, has somehow led to something else which turned out good. So yeah. something I would never do again. Mm. There's probably some drinks around the world I probably <laughs> wouldn't drink again. <laughs> okay, that's the one then. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a warning label, what would it be? No, just warning. Just flat out warning. <laughs> That's it. Favourite subject in school? Um, <clears throat> Talking between English and history because I, I liked history. I liked learning how the world worked, you know, what made us what yeah. we are and who we are. Yep. But English was also good because I was blessed and everybody that was in went to high school with me, says much the same thing. We had the best English teacher. He was a comedian. He would teach you all about um, the need to be concise with English and not be ambiguous by using humour to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to really like going to school with a teacher called, uh, to English, with a teacher called Mr Ainsworth, Robert Ainsworth, his name was. Funny, funny man. And um, I'm considered by many people to be a fair sort of a wordsmith these days. Mm. I attributed it all to him. He made me interested, and yeah. everybody that he taught reckons he was a, he was just an hilarious man. And we might not know enough about English to be, um, you know, scholars or anything like that in English, but he made us interested enough in it to understand um, what concise English meant, what ambiguity meant, mm. um, why it was important to have a, a really good understanding of English and how it could benefit you no end. You only got to look at planning law and planners and the vagueness of conditions of consent and things like that, and you really do get an understanding of just how important uh, English really is. And so, yeah, English and history, but I love sport at school too. I played sport. I played every conceivable sport for the school, (laughs) even some I'd never even heard of, but I was able to convince them that I was good at it. (laughs) Isn't it amazing to have, like, a, a teacher that can make such a difference to how you oh, I do. look at things. Oh, and and, and schools, particularly public schools, don't seem to have a way of measuring no. um, how that works. You know, um, you know. conversely, my maths teacher was a nice guy, but he was a boring drone. And um, the only way you could suffer through one of his lessons was to, on Monday or Tuesday, you'd ask him how his golf was on the previous weekend. And by Wednesdays and Thursdays, you'd ask him what he was going to do to make it better for the following weekend. <laughs> and you'd get him talking half the lesson about golf yeah. and um, and not about maths because if you spent the whole lesson talking about maths, it would just dig your head in. Yeah. So, yeah, teachers, uh, I don't know, they, they nobody's ever invented a way to measure them properly. And they're, they're an underrated species, but we all need them. Mm, definitely. What's your favourite childhood memory? Oh, I've got so many. I wouldn't swap my childhood for any other childhood I've ever heard of. 
Well, I sort of started screaming when I was six and camping and, you know, it was so different. Even when I was 10, you used to get told in the Cubs or the Scouts, we'll drop you off here and you make your way over there and we'll pick you up. And by the time I was like 13 or 14 in the Scouts, it was like three or four days away. You had topo maps and compasses, no GPS, oh. and you had to go kilometres and kilometres over ridges and valleys and find your way to the other end. And if you didn't get there in time and in the right spot, the parents weren't lambasted for being like irresponsible um, parents and letting kids do that. You got to talk them to for getting it wrong. <laughs> you know, you, you're expected to get it right. So it was a it was a major um, major um, achievement. So I've got millions of memories of those sorts of things. And yeah. then I got um, memories of girls, which I consider childhood memories, and um, pets and. Oh, God, my favourite childhood memory. I can only answer it by saying my childhood was a really good memory and I wouldn't change it for anything. Nice. What's your favourite food? Man, God, you ask some hard <laughs> questions. It's the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, my favourite food. Well, again, I've got a wide variety of foods. If I had to name one, one, just one, I'd say satay chicken um, on boiled rice, which doesn't sound all that exotic, but it's probably my favourite. Mm-hmm. Favourite drink? Now, now I'm starting to drool thinking about it. <laughs> You'll have to have that tomorrow night now. <laughs> oh, I know, because that's not what I got tonight. I got my no. chicken snips. <laughs> What's your favourite drink? Um, outside of beer or including beer? No, anything. Beer. <laughs> well, I have to say, on a hot night or after working in the paddock all day, it's an Asahi beer. Ah, Asahi. As he takes a sip of his beer. <laughs> yeah. What's your pet peeve? Oh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> town planners. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Win the lottery or have the perfect job? I think have the perfect job because um, I know plenty of people with plenty of money who aren't very happy. Mm, fair enough. What's your biggest fear? Ah, that's a really interesting question. My biggest fear is not knowing what my biggest fear is. Like everybody at work's got a, a fear of something. We've actually got one guy at work who's the bravest soul I know and best surveyor on the planet, I reckon, um, who's terrified of frogs. Not snakes or spiders or anything like that. Frogs. Really? Um, yeah, and that often brings up the, the conversational workers who's got phobias about um, different things. Yeah. And that's been going on for years. And so I've started to develop this phobia <laughs> that I don't know what my favour is. So one day when I'm confronted by whatever my favour is, I'm not going to be able to deal with it because I don't know what it is. Yeah. So my favour is not knowing what my favour is. <laughs> There's got to be a name for that. Favia, I'm, sure, I'm sure there must be. There, there has to be. <laughs> hmm. What's your favourite sport? Ooh, to participate in or to watch? Either. Well, I'm still playing cricket. Yeah. We um, 
we just played a grand final the other day, which uh, was the 27th of March. We lost it by one wicket in the last over with four balls to go. Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself doing it. And I'm nowhere near as good as now as I once was. But skiing in winter, I'm actually still not all that far off my best. I still ski close to 100 kilometres an hour. Um, wow. Most days you go there, which because these days you, you wear a, a GPS so you know exactly how fast you're going. Yeah. It's just crazy. Where where what where is, do you like to ski at? What did you say in your head? <laughs> <laughs> I just think of the times, like I know when I was little and you used to just fly down, but then I had kids and I had one with no fear. The second one, so he was a straight down the hill. We'd just lose him. He was off up and down doing his own thing kind of thing the middle one was that i will go as flat as i can across the mountain to go as slow as i can to get down the hill and then the last one was yep i'm off straight down the hill again and it's like my husband would stay with the slow one because he doesn't really like skiing and then i'd be going see you down the bottom <laughs> racing down after after the youngest one going Watch out! Coming through! <laughs> I can show you my videos of my little one who is just a rocket. I mean, the whole family joke is that she never learned to turn because oh, she yes. just got down the hill. And I can show you a video of, it's only just over a year ago, just before COVID hit, we were actually in um, Italy and then France having a, a, um, a good old ski over there. Oh, wow. And um, it was actually while COVID was breaking. Yeah. Um, so... Gosh. January 2000, yeah. And my youngest daughter, who was at that time 16, um, <coughs> I skied down this particular run. I got to the bottom of it and I looked at my um, GPS on my, on my wristwatch, on my wrist, which recorded my fastest time. Mm. And it was 90 kilometers an hour. And my youngest daughter, who started behind me, had beaten me at the end of this by 200 meters. <laughs> Just. <laughs> Just an absolute pocket rocket. And then she's sitting there like tapping her fingers, waiting for them. Yeah, so she fine. had to have been on 105 or 110. Crazy. And I said, yeah, let's go and ski somewhere else where you've got to turn. Turn? <laughs> I don't want to have to turn. <laughs> the older one's not bad, but she's not quite that um, maniacal. Yeah, I think they're missing some switch up there, those ones that just do that. <laughs> I've got two of them. I was, I was a kid too, don't worry. <laughs> Oh, on a scale of one to ten, how cool are you? Oh, I'm right up there. <laughs> if I said ten, I'd be like really bragging, but I'll go with that eight and a half or nine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> What's your favourite colour? Green. Dream car? Used to be a Porsche, but I've become so in love with all my Land Cruisers these days. I just reckon Land Cruisers. Mm-hmm. I do have a BMW M3 convertible, which I only drive occasionally because I really like my Land Cruiser. <laughs> That's a nice little car. It is. Yeah. Right. Are you an Apple or an Android person? Apple. Mm-hmm. And lastly, what's your star sign? I'm an Aryan. Aryan. Hmm. Interesting. We're in our first life. That's why we think we can change the world. 
<laughs> By the time it goes right through and you get to be a Pisces, you've been there 12 times and you're like, you're over it. Yeah, I'll just let it go now. Boy, Arians, I think we can fix everything. Well, you're having a good go at it, that's for sure. Do my best. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for uh, coming back and having the second part of our chat tonight. Peter, thank you for, for doing this and, and putting everybody out there to the, everybody else. So, um, we all get to hear and see what's going on with everybody else. You know, you're the first person to ever do this and it's very interesting to listen to the other people and see what their experiences are and what you can learn from them. So um, I know you're not getting paid for doing this. No. It's just something you do for interest. Yeah. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be able to talk to other people and get their stories and and I think that's that's what I found when when I I always thought you know I wanted to write a book I wanted to do a podcast and that's where it all sort of came from and and it was like I used to go to these committee meetings and stuff like that and start speaking to these different surveyors and some of the things that they said it was like got to get that out there so yeah 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 and it is and I've spoken to people and like you know a few people I I knew um, most of the people I've interviewed, I've never spoken to before. And mm. uh, it's been really, really interesting to have those conversations. And, and actually, you have these conversations and you feel like you've known them. They just sit there and they open up to you and tell you all these wonderful stories. It's awesome. <laughs> I think you're very good at getting people to open up. Um, and I think you and I may have spoken very briefly on a couple of occasions before this, but not not too much. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that I know Peter Cobb particularly well before this, but now I feel like I do. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of people do now. I think people know me, but I don't know them. <laughs> mm. They listen to it and everything. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Michael, you take care. Thank you, you too. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned next week for Armin Davisovic former Director of Surveying at Transport New South Wales. Defining Boundaries with Peter Cox.